Well, hope you like uh, Flora and Lucy, my uh, favorite horses from Vermont this past winter. When people say that U.S. healthcare is the envy of the world, mostly what they're referring to are the medical advances that are available to treat and respond to sudden or serious illness, often calling upon the best that highly skilled cardiologists or surgeons or neurologists or oncologists have to offer. Who doesn't want a specialist when one's health status may be in serious jeopardy? But sometimes what's going on isn't clear at all, nor is it necessarily serious or urgent. Next steps or the needs, including whether to engage a specialist, depend on a whole host of variables and some different quality of decision-making and information and process. What can this possibly mean or look like? Well, if you're a primary care physician and you'd like to slow down certain impulses to reach first for the imaging test or the specialist referral, how do you do this and still do right by your patients? We're going to look at some options and work in progress on appropriate use of specialty care on this edition of WIHI. We have two terrific experts and guides as guests, and we have you, our participants, to add to the pool of knowledge. Happy New Year. Welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. It's offered bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience as a downloadable file, either on IHI.org or on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. So, is there a specialist in the house? Probably so, and that's a good thing. But it's also an expensive thing and not always the best route to health. It could be, but not always. So this is WIHI, I'm Madge Kaplan, and I'd like to now introduce our guests and a reminder that more detailed bios are available about each of them on the WIHI webpages. In brief, Neil Baker, whose uh, photo and some description on the slides is uh, floating by here. He is lead faculty for an IHI initiative on reducing costs through appropriate use of specialty services. He's also an improvement advisor, and he draws on a great deal of experience and training, including in psychiatry to help others in healthcare bring about change. Welcome, Neil. Thank you. Good to be here. Terrific. And Lauren Shapiro works with Neil Baker as faculty on the IHI Initiative on Specialty Care. Lawrence is the Managed Care Medical Director at the Palo Alto Medical Foundation, which we'll learn more about in just a minute. Larry Shapiro is trained in both internal medicine and pulmonary disease. Welcome, Larry. Thank you, Madge. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Okay, thank you very much. So we're a little more closely knit on this edition of WIHI in that the work Larry has spearheaded at Palo Alto to guide providers to be more mindful, if you will, about the use of specialty care is included in a white paper of which Neil is the lead author. And I want to remind people about that white paper. <coughs> Excuse me. It's in, it's available on IHI.org, and if you just look on the homepage under results and then click on white papers, it's uh, about third down from the top of the list. And we're very excited about all this synergy. Uh, the white paper didn't come out that long ago. Uh, it has a real reflection of work that's uh, going on. We like to think of WIHI as <coughs> cutting edge, and uh, we think we have something really interesting to share with you today. So I'm going to start with Neil. I'm going to go back and forth between these two gentlemen uh, and uh, pose some different questions, hopefully ones that are interesting to you too, and then we're going to open things up to chat 
uh, at just about the half hour mark. So, Neil, what is meant by appropriate use of specialty care? Do we know it when we see it, or how do we know it? And is this one of these definitions that's in the eye of the beholder? Good. Well, what we're dealing with, our approach to appropriate use, is part of addressing the overall topic of overuse in healthcare. And one of the things I want to say is that in addressing um, appropriate use, this is just one of several needed interventions to address overuse. So we're not presenting it today as the exclusive or only intervention. However, there are certain areas where it might be used as a predominant intervention. So I'm just going to take a minute to describe overuse and what it is and the causes and why we've uh, and how that leads to the definition of appropriate use. Uh, overuse is basically care that could be eliminated without impacting quality. That is, patients are exposed to harms or inconveniences unnecessarily. So that there's excessive utilization relative to what we, the trade-offs that we know of between benefits and harms. And we know this uh, from, particularly from the Dartmouth studies, which the estimate is about 30% of healthcare costs where $700 billion could be eliminated without impacting quality. And this is because of the Dartmouth data that shows wide variation in cost for health care across regions that's not predominantly explained by illness rates, fees, patient preferences, or other population factors. And the key thing is that there's no quality difference despite the excess costs. We've actually known about these variation, variations in practice across regions that don't have explanations based in medical indications or other reasons since about 1938. And what, we, what tends, overuse tends to happen, and this is not black or white, but in, I think, the, the large majority of cases, tends to happen in areas where there's less definitive evidence for indications uh, for when benefits for using a certain procedure will outweigh the harms. This is in contrast, and this could be, for example, CT scans, MRI scans for many indications. There's just not high-grade evidence to tell you what the best indications are. This is in contrast to areas where there is strong evidence, say cervical cancer screening or beta blockers after a heart attack. What the pattern of care in those circumstances where there's strong evidence, strong national consensus, is actually underused. So we're actually in underuse and evidence-based, strong evidence-based care. We're trying to get people to do more in overuse. It looks like it's better to do less. Now, the causes for overuse have to do with, uh, it's not that physicians are consciously doing it. We, we talk to so many people in this area. And there, the, the consensus is that they're just the examples of people consciously overusing are very few and far between. That physicians are mostly unaware of overuse in their own practices, and they're intending to do the right thing. The issue is where there's no right answer, where there's a lack of definitive evidence, the tendency is to utilize, and there's an increased vulnerability to influences. And there are three particular ones. One is financial incentives which drive care in the system. A second is the medical indications physicians use. They may have different indications for the same patient. And the third is lack of patient involvement in decision-making. Our system is generally not good at shared decision-making, and where there's the trade-off between benefits and risks are unclear, it's really the patient who has to decide the value to them. So that's the causes of overuse, again, are financial incentives driving the system, 
the actual medical criteria used, and the lack of patient involvement. What our initiative is based on is around medical decision-making. And so appropriateness means that the decision appears appropriate. This is appropriate use based on some shared criteria. And this, of course, raises all sorts of questions. Well, if there's a lack of definitive evidence, how do you create a standard? Are physicians being forced? Uh, is this cookbook medicine? All sorts of questions. But those I'm sure we'll answer during the course of the call. Okay, thank you. Neil promised uh, he, he's, he's a man after my own heart with a lot of context and uh, background, and I really, really appreciate that. So, Larry, is there anything that you'd want to add to Neil's kind of framing of uh, sort of the problem and therefore what we're talking about with appropriate use? And curious um, if, you're, if you feel that people tend to take issue uh, even with this what sounds like a fairly judicious uh, definition. Well, I think that the uh, way I like to frame this is in the use of the, of the concept of value. And value has in it components of cost and quality and appropriateness. And I think that when we, what we're really looking for is to increase the value of anything that we do to the patient. Um, if, th- if, if we do the best operation on the wrong patient, that's not much value to that patient. I mean, it's really important to, to understand that we, we've got to bring this back to the individual patient and say, how much value are we doing for that particular patient? So I, I think that, you know, what, uh, especially what we have been trying to do here at Palo Alto is to, to concentrate on, on what would be of value to the patient and trying to create uh, standards so that um, it can be uh, we can increase the value uh, of any particular procedure to, um, to to the patient. Now, I I think that uh, you know you you're you're asking about um, how we go about do this and do, are people um, you know sort of pushing back uh, uh, against right, it? Right. Right. And I think that that's that's really uh, you know this is actually as as um, Neil said. This issue of variation has been noted for a long time. Um, uh, Jack Wenberg's, uh, you know, groundbreaking work uh, uh, at Dartmouth uh, goes back to the 19, late 1960s. And um, people have known about this. Uh, insurance companies have always presented this kind of data to physicians, and for the most part, it hasn't worked. I mean, it, it's sort of this, uh, you know, they've taken the approach, or in general, the approach has been this whack-a-mole, you know, the little game where the, right. the little <laughs> mole, uh, and you try to whack it on the head. You know, that's exactly what, what's been going on here is that, right. and, and, and physicians don't respond to that. And, and I think that one of the things that we have tried to do is to engage the physician right from the start with the use of this variation um, uh, data, and that that has been a much more uh, appealing way, because most physicians, I, I know two things about doctors in general, uh, and, and the first is they really want to do the right thing for the, for the patient. And the second thing is they're incredibly competitive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they've been the smartest kid in the class all through high school and college, and you know they don't like being told or shown that they're not doing the best that, you know, we, we don't have to tell them you're doing something wrong. We present them the data in a very non-judgmental way to say, you know, we don't understand why there's such a big variation among a group of doctors who we think are all pretty good and doing the same quality work. And the physicians themselves 
are the source of correcting the problem. Okay. And I think that's really the the key here. Okay. So that's what we're, in just a minute, we're going to get into kind of your description of what goes on at Palo Alto. Uh, This is WIHI. I'm your host, Madge Kaplan. You were just listening to Larry Shapiro and before him, Neil Baker, and we're talking about appropriate use of specialty care, and we're getting down with sort of the lay of the land context and definitions. Neil, very quickly, uh, just before, and we're going to get into first uh, Larry telling us about what's going on at Palo Alto, and then we'll sort of zoom back a little bit, and you can tell us more about some of the approach that's in the white paper of which that work represents. But just very quickly, uh, on this point of, you know, who's paying attention to this issue and where does it fit on the list of priorities, uh, why should we care about this this matter right now? Um, we've had something that's kind of limped along, as uh, you've both been suggesting for decades now, in terms of awareness, variability, of course, everyone wants to do right by their patient's value. Is there some, if you had to say, uh, drop what you're doing and, and focus on this right now more than other things, what would you say? I would say that uh, that people are, and it's a huge issue in healthcare. It's, there's really been a change in the last year in the climate in the United States with healthcare reform and huge attention based on what is the source of this escalating cost. And um, so I would say that if you're not paying attention to it, you're going to have to. All right. So that's uh, one of one theme, perhaps, from today, which is uh, get this right, uh, or others will will attempt their own uh, kinds of solutions. Um, all right. Let's go, uh, Larry. Why don't you tell us for just a few minutes about the work that's going on at Palo Alto? Maybe you can also quickly explain the Medical Foundation for those who might not be familiar with the organization and uh, its structure, and uh, sort of what what you're doing there that you think represents uh, a, a way to get at this with doctors that doesn't put everybody back on their heels and on the defensive? Yeah. Well, first of all, Palo Alto Medical Foundation is a, a large multi-specialty medical group in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, we serve uh, three counties within the Bay Area. We, uh, we're over a fairly wide geographic area. Uh, we're just south of San Francisco. Uh, Palo Alto is, sits, uh, is where Stanford University is, just to give you a, mm-hmm. a geographic uh, uh, context. Um, we have um, 950 uh, physicians in, in the medical group. Um, we serve a population of about 800,000 um, uh, patients. And of our uh, work, about only about 30% of our patients are in uh, capitated or HMO-type plans. The, the bulk of our, our, um, our patients are uh, fee-for-service. And um, that's one of the things that that's important to recognize is that this is not a, in a capitated system that we're we're doing this. Now we have um, for years gotten information from health plans um, about uh, our physicians and you know whether they are doing what the plans think is a good job or a bad job. And after about six years ago, I I sort of got fed up with the whole idea of of having individual plans give us this information that I really felt I couldn't go to the doctors with because the numbers were too small. And I sat down and and we worked out with our information systems people a way to uh, look at all of our patients at one time uh, on a given uh, subject. And um, this has been, we piloted this over a period of years and, and found that the physicians were very 
um, willing to look at this information. They wanted to know how they were doing in comparison to their uh, their the, the people uh, around them. Most um, physicians think that everybody is doing the same thing. And what we did in particular is to look at the most common things that a, a specialist would look at. So, for example, in our allergy department, uh, the most common thing, uh, uh, reason to see an allergist is allergic rhinitis. And for our general surgeons, the most common um, operation is uh, removal of a gallbladder. We asked them, we presented them data, the variation data, on these very common things, and the surprising response was that, um, you know, we don't talk about the common things. Most physicians, when they talk about things, you know, they'll say something like, I saw this great case, <laughs> and it's usually the unusual case. Right. But people don't really think about, you know, the commonplace things, because they, they all assume that they're all doing it the same way. And what we've been able to show them is that, in fact, they haven't been doing it the same way. And when you go to people and you ask them, well, why are you doing it this way? And the, re the response for the most part is, well, that was the way I, I was trained to do it. Isn't everybody doing that? Can and you give me a quick example of yeah, one, but, one way or another way it, with yeah. any of these conditions? Yeah. There's a funny story. Of, we had, um, we're sitting with a neurologist, and they're talking about um, what they do when they see a new patient with migraine. And the neurologist sitting next to me says, I don't know a single neurologist within 100 miles of where I'm sitting who wouldn't get an MRI on a new patient with a migraine. And the guy sitting right next to him says, I don't do that. Uh -huh. You know, and it was like, and they looked at one another and they said, really? Uh -huh. You know, and that that's right, right. when the discussion begins. Mm -hmm. And that's the key. The data is nice because it starts the discussion. But what we're really after is the discussion between our, our specialists to see um, how, how should you do this. And because it, if you look at these things, unfortunately, on evidence-based medicine, right now we only have about 20% of the things that we commonly do is really been nailed down on an evidence base. Most of the things that we do, most of the things that physicians do, is expert opinion. Mm -hmm. Now, it may be good opinion, but I mean, you know, it, you have to really be clear on what population you're dealing with. You know, population in San Francisco might be different than the population in Des Moines. I mean, you know, you, you, and the specialists there in the, that particular community really can tell you this. And we, we've seen where, you know, local variation in populations makes a big difference in the way you, you treat people. Right. So I think it's, it's important to recognize that, um, you know, the specialists are very important because they know the patients and they know what is going on. And you have to go to them and say, you know, well, if that's the case, Tell me why there's this difference. What can we do about that? So, Larry, just be, I'm going to uh, get uh, some uh, thoughts from Neil on this work. Um, but tell me quickly, is, has anything changed in any of the areas you've focused on at oh. Palo Alto as a result of the data? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, when we look at this, uh, I, I, we have 22 projects going on at, at this time. Hmm. Uh, for example, our allergists have decided, and there's, there's, have, uh, they looked at allergic rhinitis, and they said... Um, 
you know, some people did uh, 20 skin tests, and uh, so others did 40, and some did 100, and they said, well, we don't really know. There is no data to suggest one way or the other. We, uh, they agreed that 40 was the right thing, and they started doing that, and, they could f- and we followed them along, and they reduced the cost, and they did not increase the number of office visits for allergic rhinitis. So it was, um, uh, you know, the... Right. The, uh, the we we knew that there wasn't a problem being created. An even better example of this is our use of uh, the white cell stimulators in breast cancer. Uh, the oncologists got together. There was wide variability in the use of this very expensive drug, and um, they looked at uh, the standard that the National Cancer Institute had modified it slightly to the local situation. And um, then we looked at uh, the cost. The reduction was significant. Uh, it was over a million dollars. And um, the, but the balance measure of were there more uh, infections was also watched for. And the infection rate was exactly the same before and after the standard went into place. So that we're really looking at for every one of these 22 uh, projects that we have going, we are looking at a balanced measure to look at the outcome. Okay. Thank you. That's really great, great illustration. So, Neil, is is this uh, kind of what we're talking about when we're talking about an approach to this work, and how does it relate uh, to sort of the, some of the steps uh, that uh, you've laid out in the white paper? Well, absolutely, and um, Larry's and Palo Alto Medical Foundation have informed our work a lot, and it's been a real collaboration. In particular, I want to emphasize a couple things about what Larry is saying, that this approach is not about uh, forcing physicians to do things. We want it to stay away from the use of denials or, or interference with care. We want it to change the culture of care. And... We d- what's hard in this area is it, it's hard to change care in any case, even when you have strong evidence. You know, it, it's challenging to change care. And I know that I, got, I was, prior to this work, I was the director of development and implementation of evidence-based guidelines at Group Health. And I know how hard that is. What makes this even harder is that you don't have that strong evidence driver. You don't have that strong national consensus driver on a lot of, a lot of these topics. There are some uh, topics where there are those drivers, but a lot where there are not. And the, the first step is really engaging physicians and being interested in it. If there's not evidence and they can't see it, and they assume they're all practicing the same, you're really challenging basic assumptions. So what's very different about this work is when we take variation data to physicians, so like Larry is talking about, the goal is not to focus on high utilizers, but we go into it without prejudging what high or low utilization means. The, the, what happens with the variation data, the goal is to provoke an interest in developing a standard. It's like those two neurologists who suddenly realize their, pra- their assumption is wrong. They're not practicing the same. And that, it, and that then sets up the foundation to develop a standard. Now, th- this is, there, there's lots of work to get to that point because, you know, the first thing physicians are going to do is question the data. Of course, I would, and I have. And that's because, you, you know, uh, the first question is challenges to get the data. There's no perfect data, but to get it good enough 
that it that variation will uh, provoke a discussion. And the next step is that is then is moving towards a standard. One of the findings when we looked at successful interventions to address overuse, dating back to Wenberg's uh, work with tonsillectomies in two different Vermont villages back in the late 60s. I and knew there all... was a reason why I had Vermont horses. I, 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 yeah. just, I just hadn't it, fig- figured that out. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good point. But what, um, <laughs> what, uh, what, surpri- what tends to be surprising is even in areas where there's limited evidence, it generally uh, physician facilitated well, physicians can come to a consensus on a standard for a subgroup of patients. And when I say subgroup, it means that standards aren't appropriate for all situations. There's lots of different in criteria, medical situations that come up where you have to individualize care. But generally, physicians can come up with a consensus. Yeah, when physi- patients meet, a lot of patients meet these criteria, and then this is the, for these we would do conservative care where we wouldn't use the intervention. So, um, and that so these are two of the core initial steps in the approach. Okay, and you know, I want to remind people the uh, white paper, which I'm trying to sort of grab my copy of it so I can give you the actual title, excuse me, is called Reducing Costs Through the Appropriate Use of Specialty Services. Uh, Palo Alto is uh, cited in here as an example. Neil Baker, John Whittington, Roger Resar, Fran Griffin, and Kevin Nolan are the authors. It is available on IHI.org. And um, we just don't have time on WIHI to do the whole step-by-step thing here, but what Neil is doing is giving you a flavor of some of the initial steps. And if people are interested, when we get into questions and comments, we can perhaps uh, expand on all of that. And Jesse McCall just very nicely put the link uh, to the white paper on the chat. And a reminder to anyone who is only joining us by phone, um, <clears throat> just email info at IHI.org if you're looking for any uh, references or things that you might otherwise not see because you're not logged onto the computer. All right, we're just about to open things up to questions and comments. And um, I just want to uh, ask a very quick question, just to sort of tease this out, and, and then we'll talk about it perhaps more. Where do primary care physicians fit in? Larry, first you. Well, I think that primary care is, is very important, and we, we need to um, – it's, it's sort of a two-way street. Um, at, at Palo Alto, we've sort of been we started concentrating on developing some standards for, for the specialists. But what we found is that we actually, once these standards were created, the um, uh, primary care docs wanted to know about them. Also, we are now actually in the process of uh, developing a variation reduction project in primary care on uh, the treatment of hypertension, which is an absolutely fascinating thing because the numbers are so large. One of the things about dealing with primary care and variation is that, you know, it, it, in general, it's hard to get doctors to change. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you've ever found that, but it is hard to get doctors to change. I'm, I'm so, not commenting. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, what we're trying to do is to take something that they do every day and ask them to make a small change. And if they make the small change, okay, you actually, when you're dealing with people, you know, things like hypertension where you're seeing dozens of patients every day with that, you know, there's a huge impact in um, the cost of the treatment and the value to the patient. Um, the, and when the 
physicians get more comfortable with this methodology of looking at variation and trying to do something about it, then they're willing to to take on some of the uh, more difficult things. I mean, when we first started uh, dealing with um, um, some of the specialists, like the OBs, uh, I said, you know, I'd like to 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 work on uh, C-sections. They said, oh no, no, that's too difficult. That's too controversial. And we eventually, you know, then we said suggested the second thing. They said, oh no, no, that's too controversial. And you know, but eventually, after they've done some, they're now coming back and saying, you know, I think we can take on these more controversial issues. That's terrific. All right, Larry, excuse me. Thank you, Larry. Neil, real fast, and then we'll open things up. We already yeah, have this, some. This falls out of the first step of our framework for addressing this, which we call opportunity search, which yep. you basically take, you, you look for opportunities that have high cost, uh, variation, and other factors which make it look like you can address it, like Larry was talking about. There may be uh, opinion leaders in the physician group. But if you take a condition, and look at the pathway of care, it may be that the, the best opportunity for a standard which gonna, is going to impact overuse is in primary care. It may be primary care ordering of tests. It may be primary care referrals to specialty. It may be that there's a particular issue just going on in primary care, like ordering of certain brand-name medications. So as we've worked on this, we've become less focused just on specialty, but on, on where in the pathway of care. I think ultimately both primary care and specialty have to be involved. Okay, very, very good. Well, I'm glad we got that out there. And uh, some, you know, key concepts here, Neil's talking about opportunity, uh, and Larry's talking about that sweet spot of variation in data and information. And uh, some folks are already uh, getting on board on chat, uh, but I'm going to bring up Jesse's mic and uh, have him remind everybody uh, how to chat in questions or comments, and we'll start to hear kind of what's resonating for those who've joined us today. All right, so the chat room is now open. If you select from the drop-down menu who you'd like to send it to, I'd ask that you send it to all participants. That's going to make sure that everyone on our program is able to see the questions as they come in. Um, Now, one that got to me ahead of time from uh, Nicholas Yefantides. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. When he you sent s- it to you alone? Yeah, yeah. he sent it to me. He knows my poll on the show here. <laughs> okay, uh, good. When using appropriate use guidelines, yet encouraging patient, patient participation in their care, patients will often request specialty care that may not be appropriate through the physician's eyes or, or in that avenue. Um, you know, How do you go about handling that or, or put systems in place to really help patients effectively engage in their care? Okay, all right. So that's the big area about sort of shared decision-making, which I know is is part of this. Uh, so let's just dive in. Um, kind of, Neil, j- maybe sort of big picture ideas about that, and maybe, Larry, you can also talk about what goes on at Palo Alto. Sure. There are certain areas where uh, shared decision-making with patients is always important, but there are certain areas where it's going to be more important than others. And um, so when we approach an area of, say, uh, high-end imaging, um, it, within the framework uh, physician uh, engagement of the patient around the decision is important. There's also a testing of the standard that occurs in the framework where we test the impact on patients and patients' questioning. There are certain procedures like, uh, say, knee replacements or hip replacements where uh, that may be more appropriate in the realm of working on shared decision-making. And there's uh, evidence uh, about the use of decision aids in shared decision-making, which are specially designed tools and in a, in a meta-analysis of eight randomized controlled trials, there's a re- reduction about 25% of utilization using those. So I think it's more 
the patients are always involved. It just may be that in certain situations, it's more that the physician decision making is going to be key. The but the and in others, the shared decision making is going to be key. But the, that question is addressed. In the, we ask that question in the framework. How is what is the impact on patients? How should patients be appropriately involved in that? Okay, thank you, uh, Neil. Larry, is there a, a particular system that's developing at Palo Alto along with this work that you're describing? Well, yes, we are. We do have a shared decision making project uh, going on. Uh, for specific uh, procedures um, and specific disease entities like low back pain and uh, bariatric surgery and uh, uh, a number of other, there must be about a dozen different uh, uh, specific uh, uh, disease entities that we're, we're looking at and we have information that we give to patients on this. But I, I think the question is really um, uh, asking um, about how do you what how do you deal with the issue of patient demand and i think that that is a real issue um, the you know uh, i was talking to our cardiologists about this and they was and i was saying to them you know how come you have uh, we we sorted out a group of patients they uh, that um, did not have any history of cardiac disease but was complaining of chest pain these are what they considered the very low risk patients for cardiac disease and there was a significant variation in the way the cardiologists, the individual cardiologists would handle this. And I remember one of the cardiologists saying to me, you know, that um, there is an expectation by the patient that if they're sent to a cardiologist, they're going to do something. Yeah. And I, and I think that that's true. There is a pressure on the, on the specialist to do that. I think that, it, you know, it, then you have to sort of say, well, you know, what's the right thing to do? And can you put together a standard within your community to say, you know, this is what we're going to do? And uh, because the things sort of, you know, run to the extreme when you have um, y- relatively young women with very low risk of, of um of uh, heart disease being given significant radiation for these nuclear medicine um, uh, cardiology studies. And um, the American College of Cardiology is really trying to promote standards so that that can be avoided because that's a significant risk to the patient even though they think they may need it. And I think it's a question of the cardiologist or any specialist really sitting down and talking with the patient and and giving them the full disclosure of what really needs to be done and this is how you know you know it's not just me talking about this the all of our cardiologists have gotten together and 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 sort of decided this we're looking to um, uh, professional societies and the uh, uh, other agencies within you know things like the NIH you know to to Mm -hmm. look for standards so I mean I think that that's the kind of thing that that you have to have a discussion with the patient so this seems uh, Larry this seems uh, very related to a comment or and question that Kim Lawton has uh, contributed to our discussion, um, he or she, and I'm sorry if I, I'm not sure if, which, which kind of Kim this is, uh, said it in the white paper, the phrase that jumped out was, the goal of the framework is to achieve cultural change. And Kim yes. is saying, I believe that sustainable improvement is impossible without cultural change. 
And speaking of that, um, I think one thing that relates to it is something that John Lester is asking right off the bat. What are the medical legal considerations in reducing unnecessary variation? And I, I think the emphasis there is sort of on legal, uh, you know, kind of ramifications and fears. And that's a big, big topic. But, Neil, uh, is that something that sort of weaves its way through uh, some of the work that you're doing? So uh, do you want me to address that cultural change piece? Yeah, I, I think they're related uh, yeah. because I think well, what paralyzes often, uh, I think, is, is, is some of the, the concerns uh, about repercussions. Um, I think there are multiple aspects of cultural change in this, multiple definitions of culture. And so what I'm going to say addresses just one aspect of this. So one way of looking at culture is it's the underlying assumptions which may, we may not even be, be aware of that are driving the culture. And that if you surface and address those assumptions, there can be a lot of emotion and intensity about that. So um, the way I see this as cultural change is that underlying assumptions here among physicians is they practice the same way, and if it's different, then they're go if they're practicing differently, they're, they're hard medical indications for that. This flies in the face of that. That is a very sensitive and significant issue to address. And so that's an example of one aspect of major cultural change here, because once you shift that, then you're really starting to get, get people observe practice, ask questions about it, and come together and practicing in a different way. This, this leads to one of the most important challenges in addressing this work, which is that um, in order to address underlying assumptions effectively, you have to engage people in conversations where their views come out, right. you surface conflict, you try to steer away from judgment, and that's why I was emphasizing that in approaching these conversations with physicians, the last thing you want to do is judge high or low utilization. And it takes a particular type of leadership skill to, to both be assertive about addressing the topic of overuse while also engaging the physicians in this sort of conversation. Right. And I think it can also bring more meaning to patient demand, which I think can also sometimes start coming across as, you know, hypochondria, you know, um, neuroses, that sort of thing, people just being anxious when there may well indeed be some underlying issues there that have just not been uncovered. Um, so that that's one way I would react to it. So legal ramifications uh, you know in in all of this I, I don't want us to get too bogged down on it but that's obviously when the stakes get higher and higher uh, the legal issues you know start to sort of rear their head well Madge I would say that you know uh, I mean and I am not a lawyer and I don't play one on television either but you don't? Uh, okay. <laughs> the the uh, uh, the issue here is what's the, I mean as I understand it is what's the community standard when you get doctors together and they talk about what should be the standard, what could be more than saying that I followed the community standard? I mean, to me, that, that, that's, and uh, as I understand, and I don't have this uh, as a 100% fact, is that in Washington they actually passed a law saying that if people adhere to uh, written standards, that that's a, that is a, a defense against malpractice. So, uh, I, 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 you know, I think that this kind of, of um, process actually um, uh, mitigates uh, the uh, some of the worry about um, 
uh, malpractice suits. Mm -hmm. I think that you know, if you sit down and talk to your colleagues about these things and come to a decision on what should we, uh, how should we treat. Now, I think one of the things that's very important is that these are not hard and fast standards. We we um, we like to think about it is that it's sort of the eighty twenty rule. We we expect that eighty percent of the patients, or maybe ninety percent, depending on the on the standard, would fit the standard. But there's always going to be some. 10 or 20% of patients where it just doesn't fit the standard and the doctor's going to have to do something different than what the standard says because of the particular situation. We don't think that this is going to replace physicians as automatons. I mean, we expect that people, right. you know, are still going to use their clinical judgment. I think that, you know, the people throw around this term of, of cookbook medicine and that's what this is all about. I, I think that that's wrong. I mean, this still takes a very skilled provider to decide when the standard should be applied. So um, a reminder, in case uh, you're you're not clear where you've landed, this is WIHI. I'm Madge Kaplan. You were just listening to Larry Shapiro, and Neil Baker is with us as well, and we're talking about appropriate use of specialty care. Uh, so the comment you just made, Larry, uh, makes me wonder about Suzanne Staples' comment, which is uh, she's saying that to be more consistent across all practices, we're uh, trying to create checklists by specialty, tests, meds, etc., that uh, primary care physicians should run or pharmacy before referring the patient out to a specialist. So apart from this conversation and kind of uh, everybody becoming more enlightened and educated about variation, what about uh, things that become more systematic, um, things that you can sort of refer to that if you uh, start looking at checklists in certain ways, they might uh, help you make that decision? Neil? Um, I guess I'm not quite clear on the question. Well, I think to, to what extent if creating a checklist as a tool. Well, let me, Match, can I take that? Sure, go right ahead. Yep. Um, I, we actually have done uh, a little bit of work in that field. Um, we have what we call service agreements between the primary care and the specialist. So, for example, if a, uh, a primary care uh, patient sees a, a patient with uh, blood in their urine, hematuria, and um, they are going to want to send the patient, or they're thinking about sending the patient to the urologist. In our uh, electronic medical uh, record system, w as they bring up the uh, referral to urology, there's actually a, a list of things that come up which says, have you done the following, you know, three or four things? And before you send the patient to uh, urology, please get these done because that's what we're going to need. So those kinds of things are um, are important in this kind of work. We, we want to try to um, uh, utilize our uh, electronic uh, medical record and our electronic systems in general to uh, facilitate this kind of thing. It is an interesting uh, question because it, it really falls so much on the primary care doctors. They're, um, you know, you know the primary care, I've, I've been a primary care doctor and I've been a specialist uh, at various times. And I'll tell you, it's easier being a specialist in some respects because you're dealing with, I, mean, I was dealing with the lungs, you know. Right. When, I was on, when I was on call as a primary care doctor, as an uh, uh, internal medicine physician, you know, I didn't know what was, you know, you could get calls from all over the body parts, you know, kind of thing. And, and it was, it, it's harder to remember right. all the different things that, you know, you're expected to remember. The, the specialists, you know, and, and, and because of that, we need to create systems um, in place so that uh, our medical record uh, systems and our electronic systems can help the primary care doctors remember 
uh, the things to do. The specialists, uh, especially as you get towards the surgeons, you, you sort of tell them something or they decide something. It's sort of like binary with them. That's yes or no. You know, they're going to mm-hmm. do that. And, then, and you don't have to worry as much about, um, uh, you know, uh, having to remind them about things. But in, in general, the, the issue of checklists and things like that, uh, I think are very useful. Uh, as I said, we call them uh, service agreements, but yeah. but they're really the same same idea. Neil, thanks, Larry. Neil, um, any any comments you want to make about what Larry has just said? But uh, Lynn uh, Cupernola is asking, what is the role of health plans in partnering or phys- uh, supporting physicians in this work? I'm wondering that's has come up with any of the prototyping work uh, that you've been doing. And I think the other area that I was wondering about that because uh, I know there are other examples in the white paper, uh, to what degree are primary care physicians and specialists having conversations uh, that sort of also looks at patterns? Yeah, um, in regard to the service agreements, uh, yes, that is a part uh, that may be necessary in order to implement a standard. Uh, Also, service agreements, essentially, when you're setting up checklists or criteria for referral, you're setting up standards. So it is uh, really related part of this process, which is drawing primary care and specialists together to uh, look at the interface. Uh, their interface could be in support of a standard in, in one in primary care or specialty care as well. There was a comment on here, for example, uh, could you use phone, uh, just-in-time phone consultation with a specialist right, right. before primary care ordered a test. We, we think of those as, uh, in the framework step, that's under the step of execution, which is what, what are all the things that are going to be necessary to support the best application of a standard what it, what, uh, once it's agreed on. It's not a core methodology, but it is a, can be a very critical supportive methodology around a particular standard. So the linchpin is what we're circling around is those standards in this method. What about health, uh, health plans? Okay, health plans. That's interesting because I, I just... In this phase of the work we've done in the last couple of months, we've worked with three health plans. And um, the role of health plans is really important. And um, one of the things that in terms of applying the framework that is a challenge is if a health plan takes it on alone, the, the question is what is the structure and way of engaging physicians? The physician leadership is so crucial here. It's a real barrier. And it may be that health plans need a partner in order to do that. Uh, so... Um, so one, for example, with professional societies or medical societies. Uh, another example where health plans are involved is the American College of Cardiology is developing appropriateness criteria. And their next step is to engage health plans in, as opposed to uh, implementing prior authorizations with denials, can they partner with the American College of Cardiology to have physicians uh, commit to implementing those appropriateness criteria, which would mean engaging physicians and understanding those standards. So I would say that health plans have a critical role here, and we're, uh, we're, we're at those stages of really understanding the best ways for them to be involved. It looks like it's hard for them to implement the framework as we've laid out alone without a partner. Okay, interesting. Madge, this is one of the yeah. uh, Go ahead, this Larry. is one of the places where yeah. I think Neil and I uh, disagree a little bit. Uh, I have, uh, uh, I mean, I've over the years been involved with a lot of health plans uh, on this uh, uh, subject, and the problem with the the health plans is that in trying to engage physicians, the physicians don't they sort of recoil back against the, you know, the health plan's only interested in, in their bottom line. Right. 
And in, in some ways, you know, keeping the health plans out of it or sort of at, at, at an arm's length distance, I think increases the likelihood that you will engage physicians, um, you know, uh, better. Um, and I think that while health plans can certainly uh, be an important role in this, especially in providing information um, to um, uh, uh, medical groups, I think it's going to be the physicians themselves who really have to take this on. I think that you know one of the things is is this question of well, why should they do this at this point? I mean, why should any physician be involved in this? Because the incentive to this is it doesn't really seem to be there, and it might quote hurt me financially to. Um, uh, to do this work, well, I, I, my response to that is that um, first of all, we have a responsibility as a profession for our patients and our communities. I think I, I feel this more strongly as I, as I uh, became a grandfather in the last couple of years, and I look at my grandchildren and I say, you know, these kids, what are they? You know, what what's the world we're going to leave them, and uh, how are we going to? Uh, provide the roads and the schools if uh, health care costs just keep rising and rising and we, we can't we can't provide for for everything we need to be able to say you know uh, okay we're going to we're going to create some controls on this and who better but the physicians to to really put that into play the the question yeah. about the uh, issue of or the issue of of uh, does it hurt my income to do this I would say that our experience at Palo Alto is that it doesn't, because what happens is that, let's say that the cardiologist sits down with that uh, patient and they say, you know, you really don't need this treadmill or cardiac study or whatever it is. It's not that that space goes unfilled. Right. They fill it with the patient who really does need to it, so that, you know, it's, it's the appropriateness of the, of the use of the, of the um of the service, right. and that's really what the key is. Um, we have not found that uh, our specialists are, you know, making less money because of the, these programs. In fact, uh, the, it's the opposite. So, Neil, uh, I, I see we're, we're we're just starting to get to the top of the hour. Thanks, thanks, Larry. And I I, I want to uh, just return to one point on that, but very quickly, I want to remind people that IHI works on specialty care appropriate use uh, in one respect as part of our triple aim initiative uh, and which works on improving the health of the population, enhancing the patient experience of care and reducing uh, or at least controlling per capita cost of care. And there is a triple aim seminar coming up April 14th, 15th in Boston and that information is on our website if you would like to learn more about that. Uh, ways to kind of get into some of this more deeply. Uh, I guess two questions for Neil, um, and I think uh, some of the, it would be interesting if participants wanted to weigh in at all about kind of what seemed to be the incentives and whether it's a lot of either ors or ands. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, uh, Neil, there's the whole question about comparative effectiveness and whether that is going to sort of help uh, this situation start to provide more of the, uh, the information on a global basis. And I guess the other big thing that's sort of staring at everyone in the face, although perhaps people aren't sure exactly when, is payment reform uh, and whether that begins to sort of change the whole way uh, that you one starts to see one's decisions, um, you know, whether they are contributing to the overall way one is going to get reimbursed uh, or not. So, Neil, two big issues. You want to just first tick off your thoughts about comparative effectiveness and where that fits in? 
Sure, it's crucial. It's actually central. However, I don't think we, we can afford to wait around for it. I mean, it's going to develop over time, and it will be very helpful, and it's going to develop the kind of national attention and, and consensus that we need to, be a, to have a stronger driver for these. But we don't have time. We've, we, we need to be addressing overuse now, and we can. Then the, the second question was on, physician, on financial incentives. Yes, exactly. They're a crucial component of the whole mix. And I think that the right financial incentives will expedite this work tremendously. On the other hand, just observations, there's uh, significant gains being made without, uh, even in the absence of the financial incentives being lined in different communities. Not across every area, but this is where in the framework you have to be very thoughtful about picking the opportunity area, the condition in which you're working. The second thing I would say is that financial incentives are not the only answer, that these methodologies have to be integrated. Because if you look at integrated health systems where physicians are salaried and the financial incentives are supposedly aligned, they're struggling with the very same thing, escalating overuse of procedures and needing to address it with physicians. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. So just, uh, let's see, one other quick question that will slide in here before we uh, start to say goodbye. Uh, somebody has wondered to what extent there's been any data looking at sort of the back and forth uh, between specialists and primary care doctors. Well, actually, the way this was asked, how long a patient stays with a specialist caseload before being returned back to primary care, literature at all on metrics such as graduation or return rate, uh, return visit, sort of. So that's cycling at all. Either one of you, is that something that's uh, in in uh, the pipeline at all, that kind of work? That's going on. That's not the central focus of this work. Yeah. This work could help it in terms of developing the standards or criteria for referral and things. But there is a good amount of work going out out there. For example, Dartmouth has done some work showing that when primary care practices looked at their patients about 30 to 50 percent are sent to specialists are still there. And so there, so in terms of um, looking at that kind of overlap, and uh, this relates to primary care specialty care service agreements too. Uh, you know, sometimes sharing a patient is appropriate, but many times it's not. So the, that isn't the central focus of the work, but there is a growing literature and experience out there about it. Okay. You know, I, think, I think that that has to do more with the uh, structure of the of the local uh, medical community um, here at, at Palo Alto, where we have this sort of large, uh, uh, well integrated group. Um, the patients float freely between the primary care and specialists as as they need to. Uh, the specialists support the primary care. The primary care support the specialists, so that they work together on this. It's it, it's. It's different, I know, in in other uh, settings when, you know, a patient is sent by primary care to a specialist and the expectation is the specialist would take care of that patient from then on. Okay. All right. Wow. Well, we sort of sped along here. I want to give a big thank you to Neil Baker and, excuse me, (coughs) Lauren Shapiro. Thank you so much for your insights and all the help. Uh, behind the scenes here helping uh, me prepare and uh, kind of get up to speed here so that we could bring this discussion to all of you. Thanks for your comments. Uh, next up on WIHI on January 27th, uh, we're not shy around here. We go for meaty subjects. We're going to talk about new models for residency work hours. We're calling this Alert to Change. We've got an illustrious cast joining us on January 
27th. That information is on our website, and I hope uh, you'll take a peek at that. I want to remind everybody that uh, as of tomorrow morning, you can find an audio archive excuse me, of this program along with a nice resource document referencing uh, some of the things that we heard about today as well as other things that Vicki Minden has checked Uh, excuse me, track down for your use. So look under the archive tab. Make sure uh, many more people registered than actually got on the program today, which is sometimes the case with WIHI. And we do hope you will let them know, uh, anyone you know who was interested on how they can still hear the program. When you log off, you can download the chat. You can also fill out a brief survey. And if you want to see the chat and if you want to tell me anything about the show, email info at IHI.org. So the people who make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, and Vicki Minden. We have some nice music that opens up the show and closes at original arrangements by Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Sapasoa on piano. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. See you on the next program. Good day. Mm-hmm.